You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. it's possible for us to push our way into situation that the Lord really hasn't set up. I know you've never been there, but I have. I've been in situations where I've pushed my way in thinking it was the Lord when it was not. I'm going to go in there at all costs. This is what's going to happen and I'm going in there. Like I said, many argue that this is where Paul is right now. Paul is someplace where he wasn't supposed to be. Have you filled your life with traditions only to find them meaningless? Culture, rituals, and habits, however useful they are, are not the stuff of purpose and meaning. In his study today, Pastor Dave shares how only through a relationship with Jesus will you find purpose and meaning. And here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 21 as he continues his message, Paul's Apologia. At the last verse in chapter 21, moving into chapter 22. That's right. You heard it here first. We're going into a new chapter. Uh, We're going to be going into chapter 22 of the book of Acts. At one time, I thought I was going to do 24 verses. (laughs) That didn't last very long. So we're going to be doing the first uh, five verses in 22 and the last verse of 21. So if you will turn in your Bibles to those verses... I will read aloud, if you would read along silently with me, beginning in Acts 21, verse 40. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in the city at the the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictest of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears witness, and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. How many of you remember the magazine Campus Life? How many of you remember that magazine? Yeah, well, there was this great story in Campus Life about one of golf's immortal moments. It came when a Scotsman came over to demonstrate this new fantastic game to the then president, Ulysses S. Grant, in the late 1800s. The Scotsman carefully placed the ball on the tee, and he lined it up, and he swung at it with all his might. He hit the turf. Dirt flew everywhere, all over the the president and everywhere else. And the ball just stayed there on the tee. Scotsman readdressed the ball, swung again, same thing. 
Five times this happened. By now the president was getting pretty dirty standing there and having all this dirt splatter on him. And when this was over, after five times, the president patiently looked out and he said, there seems to be a fair amount of exercise in this game, but I fail to see the purpose of the ball. President Grant made a really cool statement about what could be true in many of our lives. There seems to be a fair amount of exercise. We're doing a lot of things, but maybe we fail to see the purpose in what we do or understand that purpose for a matter. In other words, there's often so much activity but no progress. And for all the busyness in our lives, we might ask, are we getting anywhere with it? Is there a purpose for what we do? See, purpose gives meaning to your life. Purpose gives meaning to our lives. And purpose gives one the ability and the authority to say things like, I know what I'm doing, and I know why I'm doing it. As Christians, we need to believe in the things that we believe in. We need to do the things that we do and know why we do them. Do we do it just out of tradition? Do we do it because that's what we've always done? Why do we do the things we do? And I have another story for you. You might have heard this one. little girl comes in and asks her mom a question. Mommy, why do we cut the ends off the meat before we cook it? girl's mother told her that she thought it added flavor by allowing the meat to savor and absorb all the spices, but perhaps she should go ask her grandmother because that's the way grandma did it. little girl goes and she finds her grandmother and she says, Grandma, why do you and Mommy cut the ends off the meat before you cook it? Her grandmother thought a moment and answered, I think it allows the meat to stay tender because it soaks up the juices better. But I don't know, maybe you better ask Nana. Because I learned it from her, and she always did it that way. Now the little girl's somewhat frustrated. So she walks in, and she finds Nana in a rocking chair, crawls up in Nana's lap, and she says, Nana, why do you cut off the ends of meat before you cook it? Nana rubbed her chin and said, I don't know why these other women did it, but I do it because the pot wasn't big enough. Why do we do what we do? Why do we practice what we practice. Greatest question ever asked was asked at the beginning of the Truth Project when he, when he said, do you believe what you believe to be true is really true? Think about that profound statement. You believe what you to be true is really true. And then comes the big question. If you do believe that, can you defend it? Can you defend what you believe? Because defending our faith is pretty important. Have you ever had to defend your faith? Defending your faith is known as apologetics, and it comes from the Greek word apologia. The early Christian writers who defended their faith against critics and recommended their faith to outsiders were called apologists. Now, although apologetics sounds like something we need to apologize for, it has quite a different meaning. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, as I said, and it simply means to give a defense, to give a defense of what we believe. It's very, very interesting because it's the same word and the same kind of defense that a defense attorney would use, and he would use these reasons and these arguments to prove someone's innocence. In the Bible, 
1 Peter 3.15 stands out as the most well-known apologetic verse. It is, seems to be the most well-known apologetic verse. And in that verse, the Apostle Peter says this. In fact, he commands all believers. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense, apologia, to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. With meekness and fear. So as we begin our study today, and as we end chapter 21 and move into chapter 22 of the book of Acts, we pick up on Paul, where we left him last week, in a pretty dramatic place. We left him last week in a pretty dramatic place. Remember, in spite of all the warnings that Paul had by the Holy Spirit not to return to Jerusalem, he did just that. He returned to Jerusalem. When he got there, he got an extremely cool reception from James and the elders, and he got a stern reception from the Jews. You see, these Jewish Christians were zealous for the law. And it appeared that James and the elders were, well, they were kind of afraid of what they would do. They were kind of worried about what they were doing because it seemed like James and the elders were kind of like man-pleasers. They didn't want to go against the norm. They didn't want to go against the majority. They didn't want to have an uproar. All Jerusalem had heard the slanderous stories about Paul and how he had taught that the Jews should forsake the law of Moses and how they shouldn't even be circumcised according to the rumors that they heard. And they listened to these rumors and they took them in and confusion reigned in the church. Confusion was now the norm instead of the exception. James, who was leading the church, decides that Paul should make a compromise And he says to Paul that if you would sponsor these four guys who have taken a Nazarene vow, if you would sponsor them and they take them into the purification process, if they would cut their hair and you would pay for all this and you would pay for all of the um, sacrifices, this was going to go a long way. Paul said okay. Many people, many well-known scholars believe that Paul erred here, that he was in sin when he compromised at this point. Many, many people do. It's not for me to say. Not for me to say because it doesn't say clearly what was going on. But if Paul would do this, he would show respect for the law. He would show respect for Judaism and the traditions and the rituals. And this would go a long way in appeasing these Jews who were in an uproar. Paul agreed to do with it. Why did Paul agree? We talked about this. Because Paul wanted to be all things to all people. And to the Jew, he became a Jew. Why? So that some would be saved. Paul wanted his countrymen, Paul wanted his Jews to come into the kingdom. He wanted them desperately to be saved and to be part of God's chosen children, but God's special children with salvation through Jesus Christ. Oh, they knew they were chosen, which is why they looked down upon the Gentiles. They knew they were God's people, which is why they had a prejudicial attitude towards the Gentiles. And it's ruled and reigned in the early church. So Paul does this, but while he's in the temple, while he's in the temple going through the purification process and and, and waiting for the sacrifices, the Jews from Asia saw him there, and they become incensed with him being there, and, and they said, we've been following Paul everywhere, and we're trying to get to him, because what he's doing among the Gentiles is wrong. And we said they used this great prejudicial logic. Remember when we talked about the prejudicial logic? And here it goes. This is what they concluded. Well, Paul associates with Gentiles. We heard that Paul is against the law of Moses and our traditions. 
The Gentiles go where Paul goes. Paul's in the temple. The Gentiles must be in the temples too. Let's get them. It was against the law for Gentiles to go into a certain part of the temple. Let's get them. They began to cry out, men and brethren, this is what the fellow, this is that fellow we've been telling you about who among the Gentiles has been preaching salvation to all. Basically, they're saying, this is the guy who's at fault. This is the guy that's responsible for all the confusion that's happening. It's his fault. Let's get him and make him pay. So they grabbed hold of Paul, and they began to beat the snot out of him. That's kind of not Scripture. Someone reported it to the Roman guard and up at the fortress, and they said, hey, there's a riot going on in the Temple Mount. So the captain and all these soldiers came down, and they had to remove Paul by force. If they didn't remove him, he would have been beaten to death. And they take him back to the barracks, bound. And as he's going up to the steps, Paul says to the captain of the guard, would you let me speak to the people? See, Paul really wanted them to be saved. Paul would stop at nothing for his people to be saved. Paul would stop at nothing to proclaim the gospel message to anyone with ears. That's how much Paul believed in what he was doing. That's how much Paul knew what he was doing was right. And this is the apologia. This is the defense. Paul knew what he was doing was right, and he wanted other people to know it too. Captain was surprised that Paul spoke Greek. So the captain says, yeah, speak to him. Go ahead and speak. So Paul starts to beckon with his hand against the angry mob. And he stands on the porch and he begins to address the Jews. Now, can you imagine this? Let's picture this. What is Paul's heart's desire? That the Jews would be saved. Paul is in Jerusalem, the capital of Judaism. He's in Jerusalem. All of Jerusalem is there now before them, and he gets a chance to speak. He must be thinking, this is the greatest thing in the whole wide world. This is my heart's desire. I get to speak, and I get to speak the gospel to the Jews. Thank you, Lord. This is wonderful. Why did he want to do that? Well, first of all, he felt he had an understanding of the Jews. Why? He was a Jew. Who better to have an understanding of the Jews and their ways than Paul, a one-time Pharisee? He was a Jew by birth. He understood their zeal. He understood their want to persecute Jesus Christ. He felt that he could convince them, though, that there was a truth about Christ that they were missing. This was his great moment, a moment that he'd been looking forward to. But it also was a moment that he had been pressing forward to and pushing towards. It brings me to a good point. Sometimes it's possible for us to push our way into a situation that the Lord really hasn't set up. I know you've never been there, but I have. I've been in situations where I've pushed my way in thinking it was the Lord when it was not. I'm going to go in there at all costs. This is what's going to happen, and I'm going in there. Like I said, many argue that this is where Paul is right now. Paul is someplace where he wasn't supposed to be. We're not to say. We don't know. We previously studied that, but we don't know if it's the will of God or not at this point. We're not to say. Remember, when Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, everywhere he went, the Holy Spirit said, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. Problems are going to wait you there. You're going to have bonds. You're going to have affliction. When he came into the city of Tyre, he met with the church, and the prophecy came out, and the Spirit again said, don't go to Jerusalem. He came to Caesarea, stayed at Philip's house. Abacus, the prophet, came up to him and said, and took his belt and said, whosever belt this is, your hands are going to be tied up just like this by the Jews. Don't go. They tried to persuade him from going, but he determined that he would go. He determined it was the Holy Spirit pushing him. We can't say for sure. It would be presumptuous for us to say that it wasn't God's will for him to go to Jerusalem. 
At least it's something that we should consider. You know, it's always a sad thing when my will is in conflict with God's will. It's always a bad place to be when my will conflicts with God's will. It's even sadder when I push my will on God. When I want my will so much, when I want my way so much, and I have a temper tantrum, I pout, I hold my breath, and I say, I want this, I want this, I want this. Guess what? Sometime God says to me, okay, Dave, you may have this. Oh, and I find myself thinking, Lord, why'd you put me here? And all this trouble's happening, all these problems are happening. He says, okay, Dave, you wanted that, now deal with the consequences. Sometimes the consequences are good. Sometimes the consequences are not so good. Got to make sure it's God's will. Got to make sure it's God's way. So Paul is standing before them. It's his heart's desire. It's a heartfelt desire. He wants to address his countrymen. He wants to tell them about Jesus Christ. So as we look to this week, we see Paul beckoning to them to be quiet. In verse 40 it says, So when he had given him permission, when the captain had given Paul permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in Hebrew, saying, The captain, he spoke Greek. He talked to the captain in Greek. But now he's going to speak to the Hebrews in their own language. And he begins his impassioned plea. And he says this in Acts 22, verse 1. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And here we see the Greek word, apologia. Hear my defense, my apologia. Paul's defense comes in the form of a testimony. It comes in the form of a testimony. And you all have a testimony. We all have a testimony. And it is a great defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a great thing to use for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul comes at his testimony. A testimony is simply a solemn declaration or affirmation made for the purpose of establishing or approving some fact. A testimony is witness giving evidence and proving the fact. But a testimony differs from evidence. A testimony is the declaration of the witness, and evidence is the effect of the declaration. Let me try to clarify this. Paul could give his testimony in words. This is what happens to me, and this is his declaration. What was the evidence? His changed life. The evidence was Paul's changed life. That was the evidence of what happened in Paul. A testimony is a powerful, powerful defense of the gospel. And the evidence of your changed life in support of your testimony speaks volumes to the world. It speaks volumes in defense of the gospel. There's a major problem, though. A major problem that a lot of us deal with sometimes. Sometimes our words don't match our actions. And hence the testimony becomes confused. When our walk doesn't match our talk, people question, and when they want to know. So Paul begins his defense, his apologia, and he uses some tactics here that are pretty cool. First of all, Paul speaks to the mob in his native tongue. This immediately quiets them. Paul speaks to them in words that they can understand. They don't need a translator. And I think it's so important that when we speak to people, we speak to them in a language that they can understand. So many times we want somebody to be saved, and we come up and we start spitting out words like redemption, reconcile, born again. And all these words were thrown out, and they're going, what? We need to speak to them in English. 
We need to speak to them in a language that they can understand. We want so much for them to be saved. We know such an importance of the Bible that we start throwing this stuff out there, this Christian ease. And we start throwing it at them that they can't understand it. We need them to, to speak to them in a language that is palatable to them and that they can understand. It's not confusing. This, I can back that up. In Acts 2, the church is born. 120 in the upper room get filled with the Holy Spirit. They come out and they start speaking in tongues in the whole front of everybody. What did the people hear? They heard their own language. And what did they hear? God being glorified in their own language. It was palatable to them. What was the result? Peter spoke. 3,000 got saved. 3,000 the first day got saved. Hearing Paul's testimony in, in their language made it easier for the Jews to accept and listen to him to that point. In verse 2, it says that when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they all kept silent. They kept silent all the more. Now, Paul has their attention, and he can give them the gospel message without an eruption, at least for a while. Hold that thought. Paul's defense is broken down into several parts. Today, we're going to talk about his life B.C., before Christ. Then we're going to talk about his conversion. Then we're going to talk about his life after conversion. And then we're going to talk about his calling. Today's verses in 3 to 5, we see Paul's life B.C. Paul describes to the mob the beginnings and his former life as a Pharisee. Let's read them. He says, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God, as you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as, as also the high priest bear me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul is trying to identify with them. He's trying to speak to them on their own level. He's trying to tell them that, hey, listen, guys, I was just as bit as zealous for the law as you were. I was just like you. I wanted to persecute Christians. I wanted to bring them back and see them suffer. I wanted to see them deny Christ. And I wanted to punish them for following this way. What a great way to begin a testimony. Sharing with someone your background. Sharing with someone what happened in your life, where your life was before Christ. You don't know who you're talking to. You may be a drug addict, an ex-drug addict, talking to a drug addict how you had an addiction and how Christ cured your addiction. You may be an ex-gambler talking to a a person who has a gambling problem and how Christ healed your addiction. You may be an alcoholic talking to another person who's dealing with alcoholic and you tell them what Christ did in your life. You're telling, you're trying to, to, to equate what happened in your life to what they're going through. And this gives it credence. They go, wow, that happened to you? You went through that? And again, they see your life. They see your life. They go, wait a minute, there's something about the way they're living. He says he was this way, but he's not that way anymore. There's something here. What a great way. People examine your life and they go, wow, this is true. What he's saying about it is true. He doesn't do this anymore. He's not doing that. And you get to show them Christ. That's what Paul wants to do when he now tells these men that he was experiencing the same thing they're going through. He experienced their emptiness. He experienced their loneliness. He experienced their guilt. And he experienced their anxiety. And Paul now wants to give these guys a reason for the hope that dwells in him. You are When Jesus left earth following his resurrection, his followers weren't sure what was next. 
They had instructions from their Lord and Savior, but not much else. However, they chose to trust that what Jesus said was true and was going to change their lives. It did. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to minister to the world in ways they'd never have been able to do on their own. Is Jesus asking you to follow His instructions today? Maybe He's only given you a piece of the journey, or maybe He's asking you to wait. Take a cue today from the members of the early church. Trust Jesus to come through with His promises and change your life. We're so glad you tuned in to Assure Hope. We'd like to hear from you and learn how we can be praying for you. So please give us a call. Our number is 609-884-5821. If you'd like to hear more messages from this series in the book of Acts, you'll find them at assurehoperadio.com. There are several teachings on various books of the Bible available online for download. And we encourage you to share them with your friends and family. You can also receive a CD copy of today's message by calling us. Again, our number is 609-884-5821. That's all we have time for today. We're so glad we can share God's Word with you through this ministry. Pastor Dave will have more to share from this verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Acts. So we hope you'll join us again right here on A Sure Hope.